Hi, this is Caleb Heyman, Director of Photography of the Fear Street Trilogy, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Caleb Heyman, Director of Photography of the entire trilogy of Fear Street on Netflix. Caleb, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Ben. Great to be here. I cannot wait to dive into this with you. You had to you had to create three completely different looks for three different time periods. Like there's just so much going on here. And I heard the production schedule was insane. So there's a lot to talk about and we'll get to all of it. But before we get there, I just want to mention MZ Empowering Filmmakers. They're sponsoring the show. We love them and we're going to talk more about them later in the episode. Of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Um... And also, GoCreativeShow.com, where you can find all things Go Creative Show. So, Caleb, what a cool series. I was telling you earlier, I, I watched most of them. I saw all of the second episode, most of the first one, and um, uh, most of the third one, too. It's There's a lot there. I mean, it's three complete films <laughs> in a trilogy, all shot at the same time. And I was doing a little yeah. bit of research on your... Um, just production schedule. And wow, what an insane schedule you had. Um, yeah. And I'd love for you to share that with our audience because I know we can all relate here at Go Creative Show about crazy, ridiculous, insane production schedules. This one sounds crazy. Uh, tell us yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty bonkers. It was a 106-day shoot, which meant on average we had only about 35 days per film and each film had some pretty intense complexities to deal with. And on top of that, it was just kind of treated as one big production from the get-go. And that was partly just to maintain the momentum of the crew so that we didn't have people leaving halfway. If we had to go down for a few weeks and go back into prep, they decided from the get-go, they're just going to treat it as, as one big film. And... uh you know, so we didn't actually have that much prep heading into it. We had six weeks. I had six weeks. I think, you know, Lee had a bit more, but I came out there six weeks in advance and initially was just going to be shooting two of the three films. So that's what I was, I was prepping in initially 1994 and 1666. And six weeks, you know, was not a ton of prep time, you know, to be going into what, at the time, I thought it was going to be about 67 or 69 days of shooting. Um, and that was the world of 1994 and the world of 1666. And we literally went straight through from one into the other one without a single day off. So, you know, oh you're kind God. of having to tech scout, in our case, in early February for locations that you're going to be returning back to an entirely different season. And in some cases, like at, at, at the village, you know, we're scouting it when it's just an empty field that we've kind of put up some, some wireframes and you're having to kind of like make these decisions that are going to impact you months and months down the road when you return back to it to eventually shoot. That's crazy. Big so just to bring people up to speed, it, the, the films are a trilogy, um, a recreation of an R.L. Stein trilogy of books. Yeah. So, there's three parts. The first part is in 1994. The second part is in 1978. And then the third part is in 1666. So when you're doing your prep and you're going into this thinking you're shooting 1994 and 1666, you're doing all of your location scouting. Everything is at the beginning for both of those movies. What ended up being all of those movies. So exactly. that's kind of interesting because like you said, you're prepping months in advance. You're basically doing a whole film before you even get to the yeah. one that you're prepping for. Yeah. It, it's just, it's insane to me that you guys were able to do this all in six weeks. It was a lot. And, you know, it was, it was already intimidating to come into this project in a way it being my first big studio feature, you know, um, having come out of a background of doing kind of smaller, you know, independent stuff, initially documentaries and then smaller indie films. And then the first kind of, you know, bigger project I was on was uh, Stranger Things season three, where I was doing second unit. But now here I was, you know, coming on as the main 
DP and it was like, you know, here all of a sudden there's three, you know, two films and then eventually three films to tackle all at the same time that were, you know, all of uh, at a pretty decent scale um, and with a pretty huge scope to them. So it was, I mean, it was, it was a really exciting challenge. Um, but yeah, it's also hard when, you know, for the stuff in 1666, you know, we're having to, to basically kind of go, go walk through the locations, do a bit of prep work, sign off on set designs and that kind of stuff, knowing that the script is going to change a fair amount in the intervening months. Yeah. Um, but there's certain decisions you need to make early on during that that prep phase. And of course, we hadn't had any time to shot list or anything like that. So we basically, in the world of prep, we went through in kind of more of a linear way. You know, you start going through the script with Lee and our amazing AD, Doug Torres, who's got, enough, who's got his own great podcast, the, um, the Film Roundtable. And he was our AD and is just really masterful in helping us approach this. Um, and the lead and, that you're talking about yeah. is the director, um, Lee Janiak. So just yeah. to get everybody up to speed on that. Exactly. Yeah. So we, you know, we had more time to shot list for 1994 and to plan out, you know, especially those first sort of four or five weeks of shooting. Yeah. Uh, and then everything beyond that point got a little, sketchier because you just physically run out of run out of time and of course the director's dealing with so much stuff every day um that you're just hoping to get a few hours here and there with them when you, when you can um but fortunately we already knew 1666 was going to be handheld and that that was going to be kind of working in our favor and that we were going to have a different tr- treatment for that film and we we're going to have to take a different approach, but that that approach was what we wanted creatively anyways. Um, and it was going to allow us to kind of like roll with it a little bit. Um, and Do then of you course you're working on weekends too, to kind of figure yeah. it out as you go. Without a day off. And you mean like no days off, meaning you're also working the weekends. Like no, this isn't no work days off. This is no days well, off. We, <laughs> right? uh, well, we have, you know, we're on five day weeks, but you know, with so much nights in our schedule, inevitably by the time, you know, you start your early morning on Monday, your early call, by the time Friday runs around, if you're not on a full on hard night shoot, you're on a split, you know, you're, you're going past midnight one way or the other. And sure. often you're going right through. So that carries into Saturday morning. And then Saturday is, you know, you're kind of day to scramble to catch up with a bit of laundry and grocery shopping, what what have you. And then Sunday, you're meeting up with, you know, in our case, Lee and Doug and start to yeah. try and wrap our minds around the week coming up as a group. And then we all kind of go off and have our own individual concerns. And, you know, that's really the only way to do it is, is to do it one week at a time. I mean, there's certain things that you do need to plan out beyond that. But as far as really, you know, getting more into the proper planning and more granular with it. Uh, it. It works a lot better if you can just kind of break it off one week at a time, but it does mean a bit of, bit of work on the weekends. Do you think that this being your first large-scale feature film project, do you think you were kind of more prepared in a way to be less prepared, if you will. You know what I mean? Like you don't necessarily know what to compare it to. You haven't gone through this experience before. And I assume that some of the work, especially if you're doing documentary, you're able to kind of just kind of make things out of nothing and kind of approach a day without a plan and make it work. I mean, did you feel like those skills came in really handy for the fact that you had very little prep time? I didn't think about it, but I think that there's probably something to that about being, you know, able to roll with things and sort of adapt as you have to do in documentaries. Um, and, you know, and, and it really came in with 1666 as far as working a lot with natural light, window light. And um, yeah, just being very, very, very nimble, even though we were a big machine, you know, there were a, a lot of a lot of trucks parked and you know it's always humbling to walk from you know base camp to set and just see the rows and rows and rows of trucks and how many how many people you know go into 
whose hard work goes into pulling off something of this nature, you know, and then, um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty special, but I think maybe that's partly why Lee wanted to take a chance on me because she probably knew I could get a little scrappy and and we had to go, you know, we, we were averaging our script su- supervisor said we ended up averaging somewhere around 38 to 39 setups per day. Oh my so God. It was really grueling. You know, that's including that's including B camera. Um, but it was it was it was a lot. It was and I mean, it, you know, her style of filmmaking and editing, Lee knew that it was gonna be very this fast paced, you know, it's very hungry for shots. And we had to move along at at a pretty crazy clip, which also dictate a lot of the decisions that you make as far as how you're gonna be how you're gonna be lighting and just sort of appro- approaching each day. Well, let's talk about the the differences and nuances in each of these films. And I'd like to kind of start from the end when you are representing 1966 and I'm sorry, 1666 in part three. Mm -hmm. This to me seems like it could potentially be the most challenging. And I'm curious on your opinion of this because, you know, you're at a time period where there are no lights. There's no electricity. You have to work with daylight and candlelight and make it look real. Um, and you sort of have to hide the fact that you're lighting things. So I'm always kind of amazed by films that are representing this time period because you don't have the luxury of practicals. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And, you know, after we had literally spent about se- the last seven or eight days in, in 1994 location work in a, the food court of a mall, you know, that was blacked out so we could go day for night. And all of our lighting inside was UV, which is really hard on the eyes. It was a mix of super blues and UVs and, and the neons. It's like the most artificial that you can possibly get and really hard on the eyes. And, and then we literally went the next morning to this village. And from it was Monday night, we wrapped in that mall. And Tuesday morning, we started out in the village. Oh, my it God. Could not be more different. You know, and we're we're handheld, but um, yeah, none of that artificial lighting comes into play, of course. So I, it was exhilarating. I mean, it was refreshing and it was really fun after having been cooped up in that mall for so long and straining the eyes under those super blue lights and everything to be able to just like step out. And now you've just got this incredible set that Scott Cusio and Sean Brennan had had created for us and, and their their whole team and art department. Um, and uh, obviously we had done tests again, like probably four months ago when we were actually prepping and doing things like tests um, about, you know, double wick candles versus triple wick candles, different types of oil candles. So we kind of landed on the double wicks that we liked. We tested out a number of lanterns that we knew we were going to be using inside mostly at night. And w- and when you say double wick candles, you're talking about just the literally the amount of flames on the candle and how bright that is, is that what you mean? Yeah, so it's got like two wicks that I think are basically coiled around each other. So you you do get, you know, you 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 get at least twice as much light if not more and you can get up to triple wick which get a little ridiculous. They're like a, a full-on torch, but the double wicks we thought were really nice. And, you know, so they had to order, I don't know, thousands of them probably. Um, and then we tested out different types of lantern torches. Um, and we did all that stuff kind of like early on and then a little bit as we were going in the world in 1994. So we wanted to get the most out of fire, which was our one, you know, artificial light source that wasn't the sun or moon. Yeah. Um and every you know and then of course the the sets were designed with pretty nice window placement which which we you know we did supplement but a lot of it was working around sunpath having every flavor of nd gel hard cut out for those for every window so that when we needed to add a stop or lose a, a few or, i mean lose one stop or lose two or three stops it was very quick to just sandwich those onto the window yeah. And be able to control, you know, and modulate the light that way. So the the day work was refreshingly simple compared to what we've been doing for 1994. 
one thing I was really worried about was the day exteriors in the town of Union, particularly all this stuff. With? Well, when you have to shoot, you know, like a four page scene that, you know, you're going to be shooting all day and you want it to look like days of heaven, but we don't have the luxury. I mean, our, the new world, you know, Malik's film was 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 a big reference for us. Yeah. We didn't have any kind of luxury of, oh, we're going to go outside and we're going to just, you know, shoot a few hours or shoot during magic hour or even shoot late afternoon when the sun is better. Some days, just because of our schedule and, and all the other factors, you know, that come into play, we'd have to shoot outside all day long from sunup to sundown. And now you need to be the one who can somehow do your best to make it all match. So that's that's always a big challenge. But what, what really helped was uh, getting this construction crane that had a 40 by 60 foot sill that we were able to basically arm out over the set and could kind of swing around from one end of the town to the other. Yeah. It would give us, you know, this 40 by 60 foot of shade that also made the hot Georgia summers tolerable for the cast, mm. but it took the edge off the sun. So we found that, you know, as long as you can really kind of control the light on your actors, um, even if you're not shooting into backlight, um, like you would want to be, as long as you control control the light on them, you have more flexibility in the background to kind of pull it down later. And so much of it, you know, so much of it lives in in mediums and in close-ups. Um, so that that was a great tool to us because we were able to send that over, and then we were able to bring in some negative fill so we could make it look a little darker, you know, because we always wanted those shadows everywhere we went. Yeah, and uh, we would add, you know, different filters to the cameras we wanted to go cooler um to kind of muck it up a little bit um but yeah well, i think we would have been kind of screwed without that you know big old silk overhead let's talk about the camera and the filtration for the part three um 1666 you said you had tested a few months prior um i guess my question is did you stay with the same camera package for all three or was there something unique about 1666 because you knew you were dealing with natural light all the time? Yeah, we stayed with the same camera package throughout, which was the Alexa Mini. Mm -hmm. um, and we had two of them, you know, not the LF version, just the original version, which works really nice in anamorphic mode because we knew from the get-go that we wanted to be anamorphic, you know, hearkening back to films like scream and a lot of the classics of the 90s that were big influences for us um and initially we thought maybe changing up the lenses but then i went into panavision and was very very fortunate to be in a conversation with dan sasaki who was showing me how with the t-series lenses he actually has all these parameters that he can manipulate to create mm. different looks out of one set of lenses so the pitch was like, you know, we're going to shoot everything on the T-series, but we're going to be able to tune them differently so that we have different flares for the 70s and we have, you know, more halation and we have, you know, different lower lower contrast for 1666. And you can, you know, you can control how quickly the focus falls off at the edges so that 1994 was not the most pristine version of the T-Series. He'd already detuned them, but then he would just escalate that, um, you know, for the for the other time periods. And then, on, um, which was really cool, um, you know, that he was able to, to, to do that for us and that Panavision was able to support us like that. Um, you know, and they also did some other cool stuff with some custom lenses, which we could talk about if you like. But oh, we also did some stuff with filtration, at the camera level to differentiate the look? Well, for 1666 particularly, you, you had just mentioned you were adding some filtration in order to give you that contrast that you wanted, make things a little cooler looking. Tell me about that. What did you end up choosing and why? So I chose the Locon filters, partly just to accentuate what we were already going for. The Locon filters, you know, they just scatter, they scatter the light around so that your your shadows get a little 
milked up by your highlights. Mm. Uh, it all kind of bounces bounces around, almost like what would happen if you use you know an older lens with older coatings. You would have some of that naturally. So I wanted to just kind of like you know push that. So we had the low cons as things took a darker turn in the town, as, you know, the crap starts hitting the fan, we started introducing the cyan filters in front of the camera, Mm -hmm. um, which was a way of kind of baking in a cooler look. Um, You know, it allows you to, you could obviously, you know, take your color temp down to 2600 Kelvin or something like that if you wanted to, which we were also doing at times. But the color filters also allowed us to push the cools a little bit further and particularly into that cyan zone. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah. And then, you know, beyond that, the the rest of it was really on the lighting side. I mean, for 1978, we decided to push everything a stop. So instead of using 800 as our base, we used 1600 ISO as our base just to really lean into the grain yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, beyond that, it was really <laughs> production design first and foremost. And uh, and then things we did on the on the lighting and color side that differentiated. This is how stupid I am. You're saying low con filter. I'm looking up. I'm spelling it out. L-O-C-O-N filter. I'm like, what the hell is a low con filter? Low contrast is what you were talking oh, about. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. You have. Yeah, no, for a Google search, you probably, yeah, yeah, my bad. That's Low my problem. I'm, I was looking at, I'm like, is there a brand called Low Cost? What am I looking at? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. No, I think it's <laughs> Schneider, yeah. Low Cost. So low contrast filters. Yes, and um, I I really love the look of 1666. I think it, it, it just, it looked so cool because you had just seen the previous two and now it's almost like completely devoid of color. I feel like as a series, it goes from, Tons and tons of color in 1994 to so, sort of a muted 70s, like almost everything's kind of a warm look in 19, mm-hmm. what is it, 70, 78. 78. And then basically like no color <laughs> when you get Very to the 1600s. Yeah. So I thought that was such a great choice as you get, as you go back in time to sort of lose yeah. color there. Um, I do want to move on to uh, the 1970s one. But you had mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, you were just about to talk about shooting day interiors or even night interiors in 1666 without having the luxury of practical lights. I'd love to just spend a minute on that and kind of how you approach that, because that's something that a lot of us don't really get an opportunity to do, being a, you know, represent a situation that doesn't have electricity. So I'm curious how you solved that problem to make it look real. Yeah, yeah. I mean... The first prize is to use actual fire, like propane bars, you know, um, which we did. We managed to use those in a couple situations on talking about interiors. And what are those, Um, the propane bars? They're just like the special effects department provides them. And it's maybe like, I don't know, about a four foot long, you know, metal bar that is propane fueled. And allows you to modulate however much flame you want to come out of it. So you get a practical flame, you know, you have to have fire safety and all the works of it. And, you know, depending on what you're doing, it can be a bit noisy. So it's not for every situation, but we use those sometimes off camera to, to, to enhance the natural light that we were getting from a fire or from candles. You know, when we were able to use a bunch of double wick candles, we would do that. But I also always had you know, kind of ironically, the latest technology RGB LED lights as well. I mean, I use the Titan tubes a lot on this, the Astera Titans Mm, in all time periods. So those are kind of a workhorse and we had them in all kinds of configurations. We had them where they were kind of clipped onto Coroplast boards that they were bounced off of. So they had those little keynote clip holders that would bounce them off the boards. You'd have a bounce source and you could put either two or three of them on, get like a big four foot by four foot approximately light source and then muslin on the outside of it. So it'd be bounced and then diffused like a little mini book light. And we had those in various shapes and sizes and and, and used used those a whole bunch. And that was great because you could put them into pixel mode 
and they would have you know you you could create a fire flicker effect where the where it would kind of dance around you know the board and not always be coming from the same place so it'd be flickering in a kind of dynamic way and you could just dial in the amount of warmth that they that, that you wanted uh, matching to the you know the practicals and so you know even though you might some people kind of want to stick to actual tungsten units for period work we kind of embraced the opposite you know and went with the with the with the units that gave us the most flexibility and don't need power so they're very quick to move around and then we also had some cool um custom like uh covered wagons and such that our gaffer dan murphy made you know that had a bunch of little practicals in them actual tungsten practicals you know they could stick with tied to a flicker box kind of like an older gag that we would every once yeah. in a while use but we use the titans a lot so i just want to make sure i understand your use case for those titans because i've seen like the little kino rings i don't know how to describe it but it's like a you have the little kino brackets clip. That yeah. yeah, the clips, the little brackets that you can slip them in. But you're saying you're turning them and they're facing the board so that there's no light emitting from the back of it. You're using just the board. As yeah. Well, the nice thing is there. Yeah. So the the Kino clips are are holding the Titan tube onto the chlor- chloroplast, and then you can you can rotate the tubes so that they're bouncing into the board. Or if okay. you want a little bit more, because the tubes only illuminate on half the side exactly, of yeah. the Titans, or you can spin them out direct and just push straight through the muslin if you want a little bit more stop, but not quite as soft of a light source. So they're, they were great. I mean, we used them for all kinds of stuff. That's a cool idea. I've seen them, I've seen them um, placed on, you know, different surfaces, but never reversed and turned toward the surface and just using it purely as like a bounce or a book like that's a really cool idea i like that as an interesting I'll send you soft some photos source. Of, yeah 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 oh yeah it was, if you've got great. photos of that please please do because i'd love to put that in the show notes i'm sure the yeah. audience would like to see that so that's awesome, awesome. that was right. actually something that we brought over from stranger things that i believe was developed for tim ives initially <laughs> Um, and that, uh, you know, the gaffer who did the first two Fear Street movies had some of those, um, you know, kind of left over from that. So we kind of stole them and made some, you know, modifications and the smaller ones came out and we made a, a range of sizes, but sorry, not to geek out too much. No, into the I love tech side geek of out. It, I mean, this is a go creative <laughs> show. This is what it's for. If you ain't a lighting geek, this is not your show. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> exactly. No, I love that. And I'd love to see pictures of that too. Um, okay. So let's transition to, which one do you want to talk about next? We've got 78 and we have 94. What do you, what do you want to get into? Um, yeah, well, I think, yeah, I think we've already kind of, you know, touched upon some, some of the differences for, uh, you know, what we did differently with, 1666 based on 1994 um you know in 1994 just to say a little bit about that yeah you know, let's talk. It was so 1994 the, is the first one mm-hmm. it's by far the most colorful and and that one in particular is the one that's definitely definitely giving me like vibes of scream um and yeah. old like 90s horror and we actually have a question from nicole on instagram one of our one of our listeners asking what horror movies inspired the look of the series. Now, obviously, there's a million looks. So let's just mm-hmm. pinpoint that into 94 and kind of use that as a as a launching uh, point for the discussion. Great. Yeah. I mean, it's clear when you read the script within the first five pages that Scream, you know, is a big influence here. You know, and that was really exciting for both me and Lee because we both grew up in the 90s and, you know, hanging out in shopping malls and food courts and Spencer gifts and crap like that. It's like, wasn't it the best you know, where you went to hang out <laughs> as a kid? <laughs> best slash worst. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I think it's best slash best. Those days I remember <laughs> right. fondly. I love hanging yeah. out in malls. The Who orange like Julius a and yeah, <laughs> so I was, love it. It was so much fun to to get to create that era. You know, you know that we obviously grew, grew up in, and also doing an homage to films of that era, which I saw as a high school in the mall. You know, watching Scream or 
even I know what you did last summer, films like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Scream was the kind of classic reference, especially, you know, because the who you think is going to be the hero gets killed off within five minutes. And it was clearly tipping the hat toward that and the whole design of the skull mask character and all that. Yeah. Very clearly a nod to screen scream. So I didn't feel the need to kind of beat it over the head with like building the look of the, you know, lighting and such or color use around what they had done in that film. We already had this idea that 1994 was going to be more the technology of that era that you would associate with, you know, kind of cinematic films of, of, of that era that technically hadn't been invented yet, but we were going with cranes, with dollies and with Steadicam. And there wasn't going to be a lot of handheld and it was going to be a very big in your face soundtrack and it was going to be a high energy edit. And it was kind of, you know, I guess what, I I don't know, for lack of a better term, like a cinematic example from the 90s of something a little bit more mainstream might look and feel like. Um, But I I really wanted to push the color, you know, and there were all these opportunities in the script and all these great practicals that like Jess Royale, our set deck, deck, uh, gave us to work with, you know, that allowed us to create this really bold color palette to that film, knowing, like you say, that that was going to be just, you know, stripped away as you work your way through the time periods, um, you're going to lose a lot of those colors. And then, then at the end of, of, of part three, at the end of the 1666 film, you round trip back to 1994, part two, spoiler alert. And there's a whole even bigger explosion of color so, you know, we just wanted to have fun with that, basically. And uh, I really like the way that um, some of these places, shopping malls l- looked at night, the city, you know, the cityscapes, shopping malls, certain industrial, um, you know, or big box stores, you know, when you come at night and all the lights are off and you've just got, you know, all these shiny surfaces, but some really saturated lights to bounce around all over the place. You know, I thought it it was, to me, the most interesting look that, that you could create. So we wanted to lean into that. And obviously having a shopping mall that's closing up at night, you can kind of justify a lot of the lights being off. And, you know, everywhere we went, that was kind of my MO is like, what lights, you know, can I switch off the lights that are not interesting? You know, like in the school, the overheads are off. And, you know, you justify it as being shady side, that everything's broken and that they can't afford to keep the lights on. And then, you know, again, for the grocery store, it was a kind of similar scenario where they're coming in at night. So we're saying, let's just basically shut off all the overheads that aren't very interesting and then lean into these, you know, practicals that create little pockets of color and and we're talking about, and for the people that haven't seen it, we're talking about a lot of neon. We're talking about a lot of store signs. Like, you know, if you can imagine walking through a mall and seeing the the, the name of the store yeah. lit up, yeah. you know, backlit. Sam Goody or, yeah. Sam, exactly. That's the type of lighting that we're seeing throughout the mall at night. So it's not like pitch black, but it's kind of the the lights that never shut off. And I, yeah. and I think you guys, I love the leaning into that. And it's funny too, because I didn't know you were a second unit of Stranger Things and Stranger Things, so much of that took place in that mall as well. You just can't get out of the damn mall, can you? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I know, there was there were a lot of, you know, similarities that, um, you know, felt like, you know, one project, they were obviously very distinctive, but in a lot of, of ways, they, they, they bled over and sometimes you'd get a little confused wait have we done this before have we not done this before because it's a lot of the same people a lot of the same different production designers but a lot of the same art department you know jess who i mentioned and sean brennan um both work on stranger things as well um you know i was kind of the new guy in stranger things they'd been there since season one i was kind of the one who just came on to do second unit and then yeah i was lucky enough to you know continue working now you're shooting are you shooting season four are you the just, for season we four? Just, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, um, Lockie's on it, um, was on it. Um, he finished up several months ago. I just finished last week, actually. Oh, wow. After, yeah, it was 
I mean, 11 months of, of pretty nonstop work since we started up again in August post-COVID wow. and just wrapped last week. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, you must yeah. be so psyched. What a great, what a great franchise to be part of. Oh, or it's, series, it's, I should yeah, say. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, well, back really to back to Fear Street. I knew we couldn't sure. get through a discussion without talking about Stranger Things <laughs> for a second. But all right, so we're back. We're in 1994. Lots of color. We've got to talk about what my favorite kill was, and I'm curious what your favorite kill was from the series. But this bread machine, the bread slicer kill, is insane. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that before. They slide a person's head through a bread slicer and uh, it doesn't go well. Spoiler alert. Um, so I'd love to talk to you about this grocery store scene. This one seems to have been the most challenging scene or at least one of. And I'd love to just get your thoughts on kind of how you pulled it all together. What were some of those challenges? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely one of the scenes that from the script phase, you know, we read it and um, knew that, you know, that it had the potential to be really awesome, but it was controversial as to whether or not this was even something that we should be entertaining trying to do. You know, there were, there were, there were pushbacks, like some, I think, I think uh, Scott and Sean, you know, from art were like, wait a minute now what this, would this really happen? You know, and to their credit, they they you know they they really like things to be grounded in in reality, which really helps with these crazy far flung series. You know, to have that grounding. Uh, and so we did an actual test. Um, they went out and bought uh, you know the exact old school you know bread slicer unit that we were going to be using. You know, when we when we shot it a couple months later, and. They bought some melons and brought in some watermelons. And, um, you know, it was it was it was a big moment because I think if it didn't do anything to the watermelon, then they were going to win. And I mean, I, 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 I don't know. It's hard to imagine Lee giving that one up because, you know, she knew it was going to be awesome and she really wanted to do it. So sure enough, when, when you push the watermelon through the bread slicer, the watermelon, you know, was sliced into fairly neat you know, chunks and it, it made it pretty much all the way through. And it was just like this crazy, like eruption of, you know, hugs and high fives afterwards. <laughs> and Lee was like, hell yeah, we're, we're doing it. She, she would have done celebrate. it either way, I bet. But now she was, you know, that much more vindicated to go ahead with this crazy plan. And, you know, there was like, yeah, I mean, the whole sequence was, was, you know, crazy to shoot because, you're rolling multiple cameras. You're constantly changing out from your, you know, your your stunt Kate to your real Kate, you know, played by by Julia, who, who was just amazing throughout the whole sequence. And um, and then you've got the smash into the cake to deal with, and then you know it happens once with stunts, and then you have to recreate that, or it happened first time with our real Kate um, with Julia, and then you have to recreate that with you know your stunt actress. And it's just, you know, and then eventually we got to the, to the kill and, uh, yeah, there was, it, it, it was, you know, it was, it was a bit technical. We wanted that very Fincher like precision, you know, to juxtapose with all these crazy handheld shots at the fight. And then yeah. you're going, and then you're just moving laterally along tracking with the head and the sort of feeling of inevitability you know, as it goes and, and, you know, you feel the bread slice. We got that from a couple different angles. And there was actually a prosthetic head that had been molded to match her head, you know, and filled with whatever was going to resemble brains. Um, and that one, you know, it was a lot of work. Didn't get a whole lot out of it, unfortunately. I think it ended up becoming more of a visual effects thing. But so you get the plate of you know, Julia, the actress going through um, her, her real, just so they have a map of like what her, her face looks like, you know, intact under the lighting. And then, uh, and then, you know, we got all clean, clean plates and all sorts of things. Um, and had, I think some practical blood splatter happening, but obviously, you know, at a certain point you're like, okay, well, we've, we've done our best. Now we're going to get over to, visual effects to you yeah. know to, to touch up the rest of it to enhance the blood i mean we were actually 
throwing blood onto, you know, onto loaves of, of white friends bread and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, cause that, yeah, <laughs> that was apparently all inspired by Lee's days as a teenager working at Kmart and coming up no with way. like crazy stuff, you know, these kind of <laughs> suburban industrial, um, or yeah, these suburban retail settings late at late at night and thinking about how, how it could all go wrong. Let's take a quick break and talk about MZ, MZ Empowering Filmmakers. Now, we talk about MZ every single week, and I absolutely love them, especially during the pandemic when everybody was at home. You needed to use that time wisely. You know what I mean? And that's kind of where I got introduced to MZ. I mean, I knew about them before, but uh, where I really started digging in was during that time because I had a lot of free time on my hands and I wanted to use it to hone my craft. And that's what MZ is all about. That's why their whole slogan is now empowering filmmakers because that really is what they do. So you can think about MZ like a giant library, like a, like a Netflix for filmmaking education. It is just packed with hours and hours and hours of really high quality video-based filmmaking education covering all things like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. And first of all, the quality of the courses are really high-end. Uh, you've got great courses with information we all need to know, but it, they're also taught by people working in the industry, actually working in the industry. I'm talking about Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, Tom Cross, the editor of La La Land and Whiplash, award-winning editor, um, has a whole course on the art and technique of film editing. So there's so much there. In fact, one of their more recent courses is called Indie Film Blueprint, which is a basically a roadmap on how to plan and sell your first indie feature, which is like who doesn't need to know that? So it's all there at MZ. So the way you get there is you go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D. And on checkout, remember to put in GCS20, GCS20, so you can get 20% off your purchase of an individual course or the MZ Pro membership, which is what I recommend and what I do for myself. So you should check that out. Um, so it's all there, gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. Well, aside from the gruesome bread death, uh, you also had just a lot going on by way of lighting in that scene. And, you know, when I'm watching it, I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, you either completely threw away the rule book, quote unquote, about how to properly light skin, or you're somehow kind of balancing your colors to make it to make it work because everyone still looked great, but they were completely drenched in a million different colored lights. Like, just the consistency alone um, must be a challenge. And I, I'd love to hear from you about how exactly you approach the fact that your skin tones were going to always be all over the place because you're lighting them with crazy colored lights. Yeah, I mean, we, we one of the reasons why we picked the Alexa fairly early on was, you know, we did tests with the craziest, most saturated lights and neons, you know, and uh, UV lights. And, and saw how, how it would handle those pretty far-flung colors. Um, you know, and I mean, the other cameras that, you know, are right up there with it, they're all really phenomenal at this point. But the Alexa just did such a great job. It, you know, it's it it hard to break it, basically. Yeah. Um, and so going into that mall, I mean, sorry, going into the grocery store, we knew that we were going to basically establish different looks in different sections of the grocery store. That the pharmacy would be, you know, more warm light with cool accents. That the back room where the meat freezer is and all that would have red light with a bit of blue. And then the the lobster tank area, the seafood area, was going to be this kind of neon pink and blue light that kind of went with this whole color contrast motif of Sam and, and Dina always having some crazy color contrast. And then the um, the bakery area where the blood slicer was, was more of a cool base, but with warm accents. So yeah. you just kind of flip the ratio of what you're doing in the pharmacy. Because the hope was that, you know, you know, that it, they all feel like they're in the same location, but each one has a slightly different kind of color signature that yeah. immediately kind of tells you where where you're at, even if you're coming in on a close-up, 
you know, you kind of already start to orient yourself in the grocery store around around the the, the colors. And we did what a I was kind of similar about, thing in the mall. What mm-hmm. I was curious about is are, are things like eyelights. Like, are you mm-hmm. are you are you adding colored eyelights, or are you doing like mm-hmm. more of a traditional light in the eyes? Are you are you even worrying at all about having just like you know, tungsten or daylight color on skin, or are you just purely going with the colors that are in the room? Yeah, I mean, at that point, we're, we're, we're pretty much just going with the colors that are in the room. You know, if you have a scene like with Sam and Dina, where they're going to be talking for like four minutes, you know, you try to not only have some, you know, we try to have, have a nice kind of, you know, more kind of conventional warm key light that's kind of serving them both. But then for all the stuff that's a little bit more action oriented and all over the place, be a little bit more bold about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I yeah, generally will try to have an eye light, you know, if it feels needed. I mean, try to kind of like just wrap the the key light, kind of often starting with the backlight and then kind of, you know, work and then kind of wrapping it around into um into like a kind of a farce, far side key light. And if that's not already getting an eye light, just kind of adding a little something next to it, to a little closer to camera that's going to ping the eye. And then we started doing it sometimes like this kind of crazy because like over at the seafood sign where you had the hot, hot pink and the neon blue of that sign. Yeah. It's like, well, let's just see if we can go with those two colors on the key side of the face. And we found that just by like separating them out a little bit or having one higher and one lower or having a flag in between, you kind of get this interesting dimensionality of color on a face where like, you know, the pink might be hitting the cheekbones and the, the crazy blue light is more hitting underneath that, you know, filling in the shadows or some, something to that effect. So that was kind of fun to experiment with, which if you just had kind of more normal lights, like one that's a little warm, one that's a little cool, they would just average out. But because we were dealing with these really extreme differences, you could actually kind of get a get a look out of that. And then in the in the bakery, we just like rigged lights all around the bakery. So we kind of had a 360 degree, you know, those Titans in Kino housings rigged into the ceiling so we didn't have to run power in probably like, I don't know, 15 of them just around the set so that whenever we would turn around, it was just a matter of switching off whatever ones were behind the camera and then kind of picking, okay, this one here is going to pick up the face with something warm. And then these other ones are all going to do like a cool edge from the other side. And you could just, you know, you could just change the color on a dime. So it allowed us to move fast, but always kind of have that strong color contrast. I'm like fascinated with this because right now I'm dealing with a project that is in pre-production that is all about color. Like the the client wants a ton of different colors. And we're starting to realize that once you have multiple colors in the same space, they kind of turn into other colors. Like as they blend, it's really tough to keep separation. Um, Because we're in in our particular situation, we have a big, huge white psych and we need to find a way to get multiple colors on the white psych. But we're finding in testing Mm. that the colors are blending and we're not actually getting the colors we need. And we're dealing with a brand. So we have very specific brand color guidelines. So watching, you know, this, your, your film, I'm like, I was looking at the faces and I'm like, God damn, they have great separation of the two or three different colors on skin tones and on walls and stuff. So it's interesting to hear that hmm. you're actually separating them with some black or what duvetine or whatever it was that you're doing. I, I, I think that's so cool and so interesting yeah. because that is yeah, a that challenge was... that we were not anticipating. It's kind of fun to play with. Yeah. And I mean, they shouldn't be right next to each other, but it, it definitely helps to have them on other ends of the color spectrum, you know, yeah. to have a lot of and then you can kind of do it. And, you know, obviously we always go crazy with the, with the backlights and be whatever color, but then you have to kind of think, okay, just how crazy do you want to go, you know, on somebody's face? Um, you know, and of course all the actors look, look great and everything like they're, um, you know, super, super easy to light, super easy to work with. Um, yeah. but yeah, we, we really, we really went for it with 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 the color on on 1994, you know, to the point where it was really fun and satisfying to kind of go back to a little bit more stripped down palette, you know, for 1666 and 
1978, where it's not like the whole box of crayons anymore, you know? Exactly. Now, you uh, had mentioned earlier that you were employing some custom vintage or vintage lenses, not custom lenses. Vintage, vintage, I can't say the word, vintage lenses for the film. Yeah. How were you using those? And what were we, they? So we had, uh, we, we had these old Russian lenses that were uh, called the Petsfall lenses from like the late 50s that Dan at Panavision, Dan Sasaki was, was showing me. You know, when we were in the process of, of testing out funky lenses, knowing that we wanted to do something a little different for all these flashbacks and the moments yeah. where the witch's power is taking hold to punctuate those. Um, and so we just love the, 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 the look of those old lenses and how knowing that our framing was going to be center punched in those moments, then we could afford to have these lenses that had a crazy fall off to the edges. And those ones, the focus falls off in a very unique way. It's the swirly bokeh. Yeah. The further it goes to the corners, the more it becomes sort of warped in an sort of circular fashion. And so it's like, well, but we want to shoot anamorphic. So Dan actually was able to add anamorphic elements into like a custom housing to a couple of those guys. So we had a, a 58 and an 85 mil, you know, anamorphized uh, Petsfall lens, um, you know, Russian Petsfall lens. And so those were our Ivan and Igor, they got nicknamed. You know, we'd only bring those out and, you know, when it was time to do the witch possession moments. There were also a couple of funky portrait lenses, like a 75 mil old thing that they had off the shelf in Panavision that probably hadn't been used in a very long time that we used for Sam's drugged out POV. Yeah. Just because we wanted to be quite, you know, rigorous with our, you know, consistent with our use of not touching the witch possession lenses unless it was an actual witch possession. Then she's just sure. having an overdose. So that so we had that 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 lens um to bring out. So yeah, we just had a, and then and then we we brought in some some zooms for the 70s film as well because we wanted to switch it up and you know I thought that would you know give it a really 70s look. And I love those Petsvall lenses. The look is so cool. And I know they there's been a movement to have new ones created. I saw that there was a Kickstarter oh, no. for that. Did that did you did you touch the new ones at all or were you only using no, the I didn't the even know ones? about the new ones. Yeah, they were they were pretty I mean they were they've been PL mounted, you know, some time ago. Um, but then he created a whole new housing for it. I wonder if they well, yeah, I mean, I guess you can buy them right now. I'm looking at them. Um, huh. a new Petsville 85 lens. So I think it's sort of like a recreation. Well, it is a recreation because it's new, but the yeah, Petsville 85 art lens. It looks like there's only just the 85. If you guys listening know any more about this, let me know because I'm I'm definitely interested in this. I think this is really cool. Um, yeah, I love it at the wider. I would have loved to have like a 35 or some, you know, because it just becomes the wider end. It becomes so much more dramatic with the effect where, you know, you're seeing more of the world get thrown out of focus. So we had the 85, but we almost almost always used the 58. And I would have loved to have like a 35 or a 40 in there. Do too. they not make them or you just didn't get them? I or? don't think so. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't I'm not think seeing them either. I'm seeing the 80, I'm seeing the 85, and I'm seeing the um, 58 that you had. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. I'll put this yeah, stuff in the show notes too. If you guys want to check out gocreativeshow.com, we'll put it there. Um, all right, in our last couple of minutes, I want to talk about 1978. You had mentioned that you were using Zooms for this. This is my favorite of the three. I love this one. Um, and it takes place in 1978 on a campground, lots of exteriors, but you also had these really nice very warm looking evening shots, which I thought was such a great pairing because all of the evening shots with those warm tungsten lights are very inviting and very warm and comfy. And it kind of gives you these nostalgic teenage camp feeling, but there's a creepiness to it because certainly there's a killer running around killing everybody. Um, but it, it was a great blend of inviting you and luring you in, but also terrifying you and making you scared. So I, I thought the way that you blended those two sorts of feelings in the 1978 one was really unique and I and I just loved it. So um, 
kind of an open-ended question there, but I'm curious just That's your great. approach to 1978. Maybe start with the zoom lenses. Why did you choose zooms for that? Um, you'd said it just was more, you know, it, it, it sort of harkened back to the days of filmmaking at that time period. Yeah, completely. Um, I mean, we hadn't had any zooms, you know, up until that point. And partly it's like, okay, well, what can we throw into the mix? You know, what going can we do forward, that's that different. was this different, <laughs> yeah. just to differentiate it. And that was, we had so little prep at that point because originally another team was going to be doing 1978. They were going to have a lot more prep because they would have been prepping while we were shooting. And then we kind of found out at the last minute that we were going to be doing it, which was awesome because originally Lee was going to direct all three but it just meant that we didn't have have a lot of prep time. So we had to basically just like decide what we were doing. We very quickly decided on two steady cams going forward because we'd be able to use them both often at the same time and to really, you know, run with that technology because we didn't have time to delay track as well. We we're going to be on all this uneven ground at the summer camp and whatnot. And, uh, the zooms were just like kind of a no-brainer. We're like, yeah, well, yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be awesome, you know. We and we, you know, we threw them in for like a handful of scenes, but I think they had a kind of cool, cool place in there. We still mostly stuck with prime, with the same prime lenses that Dan, the T series that he detuned for us and gave yeah. these really weird, funky flares, and that had like this kind of magenta cast to them, and um, and a lot more halation and everything. But um, yeah, I mean, just the location of that summer camp was so awesome and really lent itself well to the sunny day exteriors that we wanted to do. Yeah. Obviously, there there hadn't been a lot of sunshine in part one, 1994. So it was fun to just kind of like say, all right, yeah, now we're in this like happy 70s, you know, kind of golden era. Um, you know, a lot of the films that I think of from that era that are iconic to me, obviously The Godfather, but also like Badlands and even like the end of T Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, all have this kind of like golden sunny look to them along with I was like getting, this. I was getting mm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, definitely. <laughs> nice. Definitely. Yeah, so, so, you know, we found a lot. It was actually the only film where I just kind of like randomly found this LUT like <laughs> the day before we started shooting on, on LUTify. They did a pretty good job of kind of bringing out some of those golden tones. And then we would just warm up our sunshine off and use tungsten for our sunshine. And inside the dark wooded interiors of the summer camp, you could throw a lot of light around because it's dark wood everywhere. So you add a little haze, throw some hard sun in there, and then bounce it where you can. And it, as when it would bounce off of the dark wood, it would create very beautiful warm light on the actor's face. And then we would use our same little Titans, you know, in their uh, little book-like configuration to come in and kind of like supplement that. So there's a lot of like skip skip bounces from the, from the lighting side and really wanting to, you know, have the day scenes feel, feel the strength of the sun, feel like you're in summer, you know, um, just having, having fun. There's obviously always going to be some, some sex some skin and all that. And so, you know, it's kind of like leaning into that. And then when we get to the night stuff, um, you know, it becomes a different look from 1994 night because now you're tungsten interior at the summer camp. So it's more like kind of pool, old school warmed up pools of tungsten light with these kind of gnarly greenish uncorrected fluorescent lights. So it kind of creates its own palette that's, that's really driven by the location, but then you're just accentuating the elements of that, that that you like and always having the conversations about moonlight and yeah. what that's going to look like. We wanted to go harder with the light for 1978 because, you know, 1994 was really soft. So it was like, let's not be afraid, not normally on a face, but just, just have harder slashes of light and that can like bounce off something and create a softer light on the face. But um, and that makes a lot of sense when you've got sun and moon as kind of your, and not overcast sun and moon, like the actual, you know, sun and moon light is harder. It's a harsher light. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's always that balance of wanting it to feel naturalistic, but also what we've been, you know, what, what we find aesthetically pleasing, what we've been educated, things should look like on the screen and playing with, I mean, 
we weren't afraid to go kind of bluish with the moonlight for that one in particular, harkening back to film like Halloween, which was kind of a big reference for us, of course, you know, from the 70s. That's actually a question from Christopher Sousa on Instagram. One of our listeners wanted to know if early John Carpenter was inspiration. And I, I think it's clear, especially in the in the um, 70s uh, episode two. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the setting of it was a little bit more Friday the 13th. But as far as what what we were aspiring to achieve, as far as like an iconic great slasher film, Halloween all the way. And so, you know, my lookbook, you know, had some had some images from that that you just kind of like keep kicking around your head. And it's never like you're there was the light bulb in the closet scene where really wanted to have a swinging light bulb, you know, which they which they did at the end of of, of Halloween. So we managed to get get that in when uh you know the axe attack in the in the yeah. closet is happening with with, with Ziggy and Night, Night the Nightwing killer. And that was that was a lot of fun to have this the light swinging around all over the place. Do um, you have a favorite kill from the from the series or from the trilogy rather? Ooh, um, favorite kill. I mean, I'm I'm I really like I really like. I mean, it's so gruesome; it's hard to say favorite. But like when Ziggy's dying at the end in 1978, I just love this moment, and it was Lee's idea. When we were when the camera's craning up into the sky, yeah. and she's getting she's getting axed in slow motion. It's it's very gruesome, but in, uh, it's beautiful as well. But it's mostly gruesome. And then the camera cranes up into the air just as she's dying, and then it reverses the move and starts going back in. And man, who played the man who stole the world is is, is playing. Um, I mean, I really I really like really like that as like a a cinematic moment but as far as shot. like a proper horror kill you know i don't yeah i have to say the bread slicer scene i know sure. how can you not how can yeah. you not <laughs> well <laughs> i have to be honest with you when i when i went into this um trilogy i was thinking to myself because i have to see a lot of stuff for go creative show and you know oftentimes i'm not able to see the whole thing because i mean how many hours are there in a day i'm still running a business people so i, I gotta do yeah. what i gotta do but when I went into this, I honestly was thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, you know, it'll be fun, whatever. It's, I, I was getting, I was thinking, okay, it's a teenage kind of slasher film, R.L. Stein recreation, whatever. I have to say, I really, really enjoyed it. Like it just, it's a great, it's just fun. It's like a great summer kind of slasher film trilogy and it looks good. And, uh, you know, the differences between the three films really do keep you engaged. So I think you and the whole team did such a great job on this. And I think anybody listening, if you haven't already, check it out. Um, and congratulations to you, Caleb, for your first feature film being three feature films. <laughs> it's like, that, that's kind of amazing uh, that you've, so much, you've got man. an opportunity to do all three. Uh, and they're yeah, great. It was an incredible and opportunity. And yeah, I mean, you know, it was really Lee's baby. She, you know, she developed this from the get-go. Um, she got it off the ground, she, you know, she... She was in the writer's room the whole time yeah, and was really obviously the, both the, the quality control and, you know, the one who was able to keep the whole thing in her head at all times and keep us all honest to the story and kind of push us to do our best work, too. Um, so, yeah, it was it was just such an unbelievable opportunity to get to work with her and the her and the rest of the team. And, well, hook us yeah. up. I'd love yeah. to have her on. We don't we don't get to talk to a lot of directors, so I think it'd be, okay. it'd yeah. be fun if if you think she'd be yeah. down for it. Yeah, connect her to Connor, our producer. I mean, that would be a blast. Absolutely. All right. Well, ping her. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, she's right. she's she's the greatest. <laughs> well, I want to thank you again. Great job. Where can people go to find out more about you? Um, CalebHayman.com. Um pretty easy. Instagram is just Caleb Heyman, H-E-Y-M-A-N-N, like yep. Hey Man with two N's. And that's it. I'm looking at your Instagram now. Lots of cool stuff here. You guys are going like to like it. I'll put it in the show notes as well. Caleb Heyman, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll have to have you back maybe for um, uh, Stranger Things when it comes out. I would love to. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes out early next year, I would absolutely love to. Thank you, Definitely. man. It was great chatting with you. 
All right, I want to thank Caleb Heyman for coming on the show and talking to us all about his work on the trilogy, Fear Street on Netflix. I really did enjoy it. I wasn't just, you know, saying that for the guests. Like, I enjoyed it. It was a fun watch. And all three of them look so different. It's just cool to see, you know, how we incorporated all of the different looks and time period into one cohesive season. So check it out for yourself um, on Netflix. I also want to thank Connor Crosby, our producer. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com and Dave Siegel, siegelsound.com for mixing, mastering, and making the show sound so good. Of course, you can follow Go Creative Show on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you're interested in what I'm doing with my production company, you can find me at Ben Consoli, at Ben Consoli on Instagram and Twitter. I want to thank you all for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.